Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Uh, Michael Barber with us. So Michael Barber, um, as people will, uh, I'm sure, know, but I'll, I'll do a bit of introduction to Michael. I'm sure people will know a lot about him. But um, I first met Michael when he was chief uh, schools advisor, advisor on school standards in the Department for Education in the UK in the late 1990s. Um, from where he went on to run the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit, the f- created and established and ran the first Prime Minister's Delivery Unit for Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister, um, focusing on a, on a series of really important reforms to the, uh, particularly to the English states, uh, on education, health, transport and crime and criminal justice in particular. Uh, and from there uh, into uh, his sort of post-UK government career, although he's continued to advise the UK government, uh, uh, with uh, Pearson's McKinsey and then with uh, Delivery Associates, which he founded. And, and Michael has worked all over the world with governments on their delivery challenges, on how they implement their policies, on uh, the improvements in their public services. So he's got a huge amount of experience. And in one of those particular instances is going to be the focus of our discussion or part of the focus of our discussion today, which is education reforms in Pakistan in the Punjab, which, which uh, he worked with Javed on. So that will f- form a particular part of our focus. And, and that's also the focus of Javed's uh, research thesis. Um, so we do want to spend some time talking about that. But Michael has also recently done some work for the British government on a public value review, uh, advising the government on the levelling up agenda, um, reforms in, in the NHS and so on. And so there are these much wider questions of delivery, of public sector leadership, of public policy governance, which uh, we can also touch on, I hope, in the discussion. And um, after we've heard from Michael and Javid, we'll have Arif, um, our colleague uh, uh, Arif Navid from the Department of Education, uh, a lecturer who works in particular on, on mass schooling in the Global South. So Arif will kick us off with some reflections before we get into wider Q&A. But that's probably enough from me. If, um, Michael, I can hand over to you now, that would be great. Well, thank you, Nick. Thanks for the, the, for the kind introduction and thanks everybody for, for joining. It's a real privilege to work with uh, um, IPR at Bath uh, and particularly with, with uh, Nick, who, as he mentioned, um, we met first in the late 1990s and worked together with the Department for Education, but later worked on a, a range of government reforms in the Blair era together and stayed in dialogue through Nick's time in the policy uh, unit in number 10 with Gordon Brown and so on. So it's always a privilege to work with Nick and Bath is very lucky to have him. Um, you may probably all agree with me, I hope. Um, and thank, thanks also for arranging something with Javed. Javed and I were close colleagues in the Punjab education reforms, as Nick mentioned. And the one Javed made many contributions, but the most imp- the, the, the most significant in many ways was he initiated it. He arranged the first meeting for me with the chief minister in Punjab. The, the people who wrote the American constitution uh, like to say that they were present at the creation and Javid was present at the creation of the Punjab education road, reform roadmap. And uh, it was a tremendous ride with many challenges, but Javid was always committed above all to making sure that the reform worked for the children across his uh, home, wonderful province of Punjab. So it's a real privilege to work with you again, Javid, and I'm looking forward to the dialogue and uh, thanks to everybody for joining. All of you, by the way, feel free to ask any questions you want. Don't feel limited. Uh, if, I have, if, I, if, I, if you wish I'd said something I haven't said, please ask about that. If you wanna ask about something I did say and you don't agree, feel free to debate it with me. Um, 
if you want to talk about um, recent work I've done for the British government as well as more distant work, feel free. I'm totally open to um, any questions that you that 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 my presentation prompts in your head. If you want to follow up, given that this is an academic seminar, there's two books I've written on very closely related subjects, both of which deal in part with the Punjab education reforms. One was published by Penguin in 2015. It's called How to Run a Government. Uh, and it's it's eight chapters about how to organize government to get big things done. And then more recently, last year, actually, um, in 2021, uh, I published a, a, a second book on similar themes called uh, Accomplishment, How Ambitious and Challenging Things Get Done. And the difference between the two is that the second one, first of all, I'd learned more because I'd had another four years of, of doing stuff around the world, including in Punjab, uh, but also I had seen the pattern of accomplishment in government, which I laid out in how to run how to run a government. But for accomplishment, I had also seen that same pattern in other fields, in business, in elite sport, in art, in science. Uh, and there's a there's a kind of pattern to accomplishment that you see over and over again. And I tried to pull out the themes. So what I'm going to do in the next 15, 20 minutes is set out the the seven or eight key elements of that pattern, that pattern of accomplishment. And I'm going to use some examples from uh, other parts of the world, but always examples from within the Punjab work to relate it to uh, the work that Javed and I did together and that is the heart of this seminar. And the first starting point is ambition. So the first thing about accomplishing ambitious and challenging things is you have to have ambition. It's a kind of statement of the obvious. Uh, there's lots of things you can do in life that are cautious and easy and incremental. My book's not about that. This is about ambitious things. So you have to have a sense of ambition. And the question that raises is where does ambition come from in, um, in government or these other walks of life? And one of the, we, we live in an era where there's a, a, a good and important emphasis on evidence-based policy. However, uh, evidence-based policy on its own is not enough to get you ambition because normally if you look at the evidence of the past it doesn't indicate that you should do something ambitious because by almost by definition really ambitious things haven't been done in the past if you knew exactly how to do something it wouldn't be ambitious anybody can anybody can just replicate something relatively straightforwardly but to do something really ambitious that you've never done before means it's not in the in the past and so it's not yet firmly in the evidence of course, the evidence is still important, but don't let the evidence necessarily limit your ambition. That's a, a key message of this, I think. Um, I'll give you two examples on this. So everybody knows that um, President Kennedy promised to put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s in his speech in 1961. If you look at the that, the de that speech in detail, he says it in Congress, and uh, there's a lot of murmuring. They're not impressed. And he says, well, he had libs, which he hardly ever did in Congress. He had libs and he says, well, if you don't want to do it, maybe that's OK. But if we are going to do it, we do need to decide right away. And then he carries on with his speech. Um, and, and importantly, he didn't say we're going to put the first man on the moon. So he didn't say we're going to beat the Soviet Union to it, even though it was the height of the Cold War. He said we're going to put a man on the moon. In 1965, Johnson, now having succeeded Kennedy, made a speech at NASA and he asked a relatively junior speechwriter in the, in the White House to write the speech for his visit to NASA. And this guy, Bob Hardesty, wrote the speech. And the speech um, 
uh, went to Johnson the night before and Johnson didn't like it. He said, there's no news in this. Uh, Nick's been there with Gordon. I've been there with Tony. You know what it's like. You write a speech, you think it's really good, but they want the news. They want the headline. So it comes back to Bob Hardesty. And the next morning, he's now only got a few hours to finish the speech. He rings a few people. And then he says, actually, here's a way of making news. He says, we're going to put the first man on the moon. It just adds a single word. And he assumes that several gatekeepers in the president's private office, the chief of staff and others will eliminate this if they don't like it. But actually they're all out, they're busy. And it goes straight to Johnson and Johnson absolutely loves it. Um, Delivers the speech with that word in, even though only three weeks before the Soviet Union had put an unmanned spacecraft on the moon. Um, And within minutes, it's gone around the world as news. And also NASA has rung Bob Hardesty and said, what the hell are you doing? And, uh, uh, but it's, but the, but the, 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 the speech has gone out. And Hardesty assumes for most of that afternoon that he will be fired that day. But at, by coincidence, he runs into um, Johnson in the White House and Johnson throws his arms, a very physical man, Johnson, throws his arms around Hardesty and says, now that's what I call a news headline uh, and pats him on the back and celebrates it. So they can't fire him. Uh, and NASA can't do anything about it, and then they have to get organised and they do it. The point is the ambition came from a a piece of serendipity, not from analysis, uh, not from the evidence, uh, but they did it. It, So it drove the ambition. And and actually, uh, um, Javid was there when we had the first meeting with the chief minister, as I mentioned, in in Punjab, and we told him, Javid and I, uh, and our colleague Fenton Whelan, we told him the state of affairs of education in Punjab. And he, he looked at the officials, the, the, the chief minister, all down the other side of the table. And he said, is this true? We were basically saying, you're not on chat, chat to meet the Millennium Development Goals of 2015. This was in 2009. Sorry, 2010, 2009. Um, so he... He says, when all the officials look at their shoes, they, they just don't know what to say. That the, the furious chief minister saying, is this true? And he repeats it. And eventually I said, look, it is true, but that's not the important question. The important question is, what are we going to do about it? And so Javid and I had already planned this moment in the conversation. So we say, well, would you like us to come back in a month with a plan of how you could fix this? And of course, the chief minister says, absolutely, uh, yes, and we do do that, and that's where the roadmap was born. So we went to, and we used other case studies from elsewhere in the world, and we set out a roadmap, and that was the beginning of a, a, of a 10-year run uh, with lots of ups and downs, but that was the beginning. The ambition came from the chief minister's willpower. He, he, if he looked at the data from Punjab, there's no way he'd have set the goals he set to get universal uh, attendance, to get um, performance improving, etc. So I'm just mentioning... Ambition doesn't always, it doesn't come from the evidence alone. You have to look at the evidence, but you also need sometimes a leap of faith. Um, the second key element um, is uh, what I call intelligence or mapping the field or, you know, so, so looking at what you see. So now you've decided what you want to do and it's a big, difficult thing. Let's say you, you might have decided to run a marathon or you might have decided to put a man on the moon or you might have decided to improve healthcare in the UK or education in Punjab. You've decided what you want to do. Now you have to map with a really honest appraisal the state of affairs currently in your place, but also 
where in other countries or other fields where they're doing similar things that you can learn from. So this is about gathering the intelligence, pulling the evidence together, analyzing it, not getting distracted into research questions because you know what your goal is, but focusing it on what would it take to get that job done. Um, my favorite example in the book on this is nothing to do with politics. It's an interview I did, which is reported in the book with Gareth Southgate, the England football manager, uh, who this was it was after he'd done the World Cup in Russia. And if you, if you remember in the World Cup in Russia in 2018, England won a penalty shootout against Colombia. It was the first time in the whole of history that England had ever won a penalty shootout in a World Cup. So I asked him how he had done that. And he went through all the detail that they went into to make sure every single player in the squad, because you don't know who's going to be on the field when you get to a penalty shootout, every player had practiced over and over and over and over again, one penalty or possibly two. And on the day they were told, if you are selected for the shootout, just do that penalty. You've done it a hundred times, just do it again. Then the goalkeepers got together. There's three goalkeepers in the squad and a goalkeeping coach. And this is, this is surveying the intelligence. So they thought, well, once they were drawn against Colombia in the round of 16, Southgate said to them, look, there might be a penalty shootout. So can you prepare properly? So the, the, the coach and the three goalkeepers sit together and they watch every single televised penalty by a Colombian anywhere in the world in the preceding years, whether it's for their club or country. And then they decide collectively, they have a debate, if that person comes up to take a penalty, which way would we dive? And they decide. And Jordan Pickford, who in the end was in the goal, he said, well, that's fine. I'm, I'm really happy with where we've got to. But how will I remember on the evening which way to dive and who these people are? And the goalkeeping coach said, very simple. We'll write all the names of the Colombian squad on your water bottle and which way to dive, which they then did. And if you watch it on YouTube, you'll see he goes and picks up his water bottle between penalties. That is real mapping the intelligence uh, and thinking through what it means for your goal. Um, sadly, it didn't quite work against Italy in the Euro final, uh, but, uh, but the goalkeeper did save two, did save two penalties uh, in, in that case. Um, the third thing is planning. So, so you've got your ambition, you've surveyed the intelligence, you've, select, you've been selective in trying to understand, make sense of the field you're in, whether it's reducing health waiting times or improving education in Punjab. And in education in Punjab, we looked at Western Cape, we looked at uh, in South Africa, we looked at... Um, uh, one of the provinces of, uh, of India where they made really good progress. Uh, and uh, we looked at um, Minas Gerais in Brazil and we learned the lessons and you could see the pattern of accomplishment in those three areas. And then we adapted it and ch channeled it for Punjab. Um, so, now, so now you've done the intelligence and then you've got to do a plan. And the thing about planning is, and many of you may have worked in civil services, Nick certainly has, Javid certainly has, is you tell people to, to do a plan and what they do is go away and write a kind of 80, 100 page essay with some glossy pictures and a nice cover, but it's not really a plan. It's a kind of essay and it might be very, very interesting, but it's not a plan. It's not an operational plan. It's not a, a, a plan that you can use day to day to make things happen. A plan like that, which I would call a delivery plan, has key elements. One is it sets out the steps you're gonna take it sets out when they're going to be taken and it sets out who's responsible. For, so for each action, there's a person responsible and there's a deadline. And obviously, the further you get into the future, you're more the less uh, uh, 
clear you are about that. But for the, for the beginning, it's really clear. And in the Punjab roadmap, map, uh, Javid and I and the colleagues involved, we had for, we had for each action, and you, you can see these in the book. There's actually pictures of the Punjab roadmap um, plan itself. It does literally that: what we're going to do, when, who's responsible, uh, and then uh, we have. Uh, so we now have a plan. But of course, plans never really work. Um, just between where you are in Bath and where I am in North Devon, uh, there's Exmoor. On Exmoor, there's a pub called the Royal Oak uh, in a small village called Withypool. I commend it to you. It's where Eisenhower uh, spent time planning the D-Day landings because um, they, they rehearsed the D-Day landings on Woolacombe Beach. Uh, and the Royal Oak was a nice pub not too far from Woolacombe. So he stayed there. His famous thing uh, on planning is uh, plans are useless, but the planning is absolutely essential. I haven't got the words exactly right, but that's the point. So you do the planning. You, that means you can get started. You don't want a perfect plan. You want enough to get started because you're going to learn as you go and your plan will turn out not to be quite right. Mike Tyson put it rather more crudely. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So this bit is really important. Planning is about... Getting, getting started, getting, uh, getting, getting it working and making sure that the key people understand the plan. Obviously, they should understand the ambition, but also the plan. Um, and then you can get on with it, which leads to the next thing, which is you do need to build a guiding coalition. Who are the people on whom you depend to get this done? It might be you can't do anything this big on your own. You might be able to do it with six or seven or eight people and then you once you've got that core leadership group you can widen out the circles of leadership if nick remembers back to the time he and i were in the department for education with david blunkett though there was the special advisor's office nick was a key part of that a guy called conor ryan there was david blunkett himself overseeing it there were a couple of ministers of state who were who were absolutely crucial there was me responsible for the implementation of the school reform in the department there was a permanent secretary who was like a rock in support of all this there was a new director general of schools who got behind it. Uh, there was uh, a crucial person, first David Miliband, and then Andrew Adonis in number 10, who were that link, and then yet to build relationships into the treasury. That, that is your guiding coalition, effectively. And for a while, there was a chief inspector who was quite difficult to manage, but he was part of it until he, um, until he got too difficult and, um, uh, and he left and the guiding coalition lost him, but gained some other people. You have to manage that. So if you're doing something, so if you, if you apply it into Punjab, we have the chief at the beginning, the, the guiding coalition was the chief minister, me, uh, Javid and Fenton, who are my team. Nobody else believed it. On the way out of that first meeting, the director general of schools, who uh, or, or the equivalent, they call him the secretary of schools, who was a wonderful man. That's the first time I met him. On the way out of the room that day, he said to me, you should never tell people what they don't want to hear. He was really upset that the chief minister knew how bad things were. But two years later, he said, at the beginning, I was the biggest skeptic about this roadmap. And now I'm the biggest fan of it. And why did he do say that? Because it meant his job was doable. We built, we built a guiding coalition around him. He could actually do the work. He was a very ethically sound person. He wanted to do the job. He hadn't been able to before, and he hated having to tell the chief minister how bad things were. But once we got through that, the roadmap helped him do his job, and he became a huge fan and ally of it all. So that's the guiding coalition. And then 
obviously and really importantly and very often not done in government you have to get the data you have to know whether this plan is working as you and how do you know if it's working um in punjab there are 35,000 schools there are 20, uh, 36 districts um there are uh, hundreds of thousands of teachers if you're gonna whatever the chief minister's willpower to change what happens to the children you've got to change what teachers do all day this is the key thing in an education reform does it change what teachers do all day if it doesn't nothing will change in terms of the outcomes so how do you get this roadmap and this plan to influence every single school well you need at every level in the delivery chain you need the right level of pressure so will teachers and schools be held to account for, the, for their performance so we we put that in place uh, i'll explain how in a moment uh, but also, will they be supported to do the job? Will they get the materials? Will they get the support? Will they get the encouragement? Are they properly paid and looked after? All of that. So every level in the delivery chain, the teacher, the head teacher, the district, well, there's a small bit of a district called a tessiel, the tessiel, the district, uh, and then to some extent, a kind of regional thing, but not, not really important. And then the Department for Education in Lahore, you map out the delivery chain and you say, where can you combine pressure and support at every level? pressure to make the change, support to enable the change to be made. And if you can get that right, things begin to work. So we, we um, put in place data and monitoring. We wanted to know in all these uh, thousands and thousands of schools, whether the teachers were showing up. We knew they weren't at the beginning, about 80% of teachers turned up on any given day. How could we find that out? We wanted to know whether the children showed up. We wanted to know whether the water ran in the taps and whether the electricity worked. The way we solved that, which was not very high tech, was to employ 900 former army uh, staff and give them all a motorbike. And they got, on a Monday, they'd show up to a regional office or a district office, and they'd get printed out from the computer, computer 15 schools they had to visit in that district that, that week. Um, off they go on their motorbike. And, they had to count, they had to go into the school, not just look at the register, but count the children, count the teachers, check the water, check the electricity, check the toilets uh, worked, all of that thing, and then submit that. And at the beginning it was a paper exercise, but then it became a tablet-based exercise. And that way you could get somebody to visit every single school in Punjab once a month. And you accumulate that data, it gets sent to a computer in law. So by the end of February, at the end of the, the data for February will be analyzed and recirculated to every school by the 15th of March. So now every school knows how well every other school did, uh, how well they're doing compared to the average. Every district knows how they're doing. Uh, and then you combine all that. And then you have a, we have a stock take with the chief minister every two months. That's why I went 50 something times because I went to attend these stock takes. And in the stock take, you show Beautiful, on beautiful PowerPoint slides, a map of Punjab. Here are the 36 districts. These ones that are green are on track to hit the target on children's attendance, teachers' attendance, basic facilities, and so on. Uh, and then these ones aren't. So, so the chief minister now doesn't have to decide every two months what his overall policy is. He knows that. He has to decide what to do about the districts that are falling behind. Do they need extra support? Is there some problem? Has there been a flood on the Indus that month? Uh, is the person running the district up to the job? So the stock take is now not a review of the policy because we know the policy, 
It's a review of the implementation of policy district by district. And the district leader now has from us, from the data pack, not just what, how each school is performing on the key indicators, but the phone number of the head teacher of the school. So the, the district leader's got no excuse for not following up where a school has fallen behind. So you've now you've got that system running and that, that took a while to get going, but once it was going, it was really, really powerful. And then later on, obviously, because it's about, in, in the end, it's about the outcomes, we built in ways of monitoring children's performance in, in three different ways. So we didn't rely on a single data set. So I've gone through four things, ambition, the intelligence and mapping all of that out, the planning, the guiding coalition, and now the data and monitoring. And I mentioned in passing, but I want to emphasize the stock takes are really important, having them every two months. Blair did it brilliantly for health and education. And as Nick remembers, because he was in the home office by then on, on immigration and crime uh, and so on. So once you get that routine, you don't need a lot of the leader's time, but you do need it routinely and with discipline. Um, and my biggest fight when I was running the original delivery, it was to, to build into Blair's diary, arguing with all the other people who have legitimate demands on a prime minister's time to keep these stock takes in there. It was the same challenge I had in the first half of last year, trying to get those stock takes mapped into Boris Johnson's diary, uh, which was even harder. Um, but they are, in spite of everything uh, that we've all been reading about in the papers, because I, I finished in August, in spite of all of that, the stock takes are still happening, which is interesting. So you have to fight for the time. And with the chief minister in Punjab, we needed one uh, meeting, usually about an hour and a half every two months. So he can spend all the rest of his time doing other stuff, but he's got to be there for those. And he was very, very relentless about that and very good. He wasn't um, as polite as a British person would be in a stock take. Javid will remember some celebrated incidents. One, I remember once he said to one of the, to the chief, to the um, secretary of education, uh, fire the um, director of uh, that district. And, uh, oh no, he said suspend the director of that district. And the, the um, secretary said, well, he's already suspended. Uh, and the chief minister said, well, throw him in the Arabian Sea then. Uh, and the meeting went on. So it was, it was pretty blunt and real theatre. And what was interesting is as they ran, more and more people came to these stock takes to watch the theatre. By the end, there were like 100 people in a stock take. The people around the table were quite a small number, but it was like a, it was almost like, a, not quite like a bear pit, but it was a really, really uh, vibrant uh, debate. And that was, that's one of the things you have to take account in delivery is the culture of the place, the, the person who's chief minister, the way it all works, which was very different from, from my experience in Britain or Canada. Uh, for that matter. Um, but those routines are fundamentally important. And that's what we built into Justin Trudeau's diary in the first term there. It's what uh, 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 Shabazz Sharif did in Punjab, as I've mentioned. Uh, when I worked with the guy who ran Louisiana's schools after Katrina, it's what he did. So he, he had a weekly routine and he just stuck to it all the way through. Um, and then having put all that in place, the, the crucial thing, if you put all that together is you're learning all the time. And this is really, this is the most important single point about ambitious and challenging things is you can only achieve them if you learn as you go. Learn from your mistakes, learn from what works, learn systematically. And the combination of the, the plan, which you then refine as you learn, uh, of the routines, which means you have an opportunity to learn all the, right, all the time, and of the data, which informs the learning is the evidence base for it. That's the driver here of, being able to do ambitious things. And if you talk to elite sports teams, uh, 
one of the people featured in um in, in accomplishment is Dave Brailsford running Team Sky and how they won all those tours de France. And every evening they're going right through systematically the data of every single rider in the Tour de France and varying their tactics and their nutrition for the following day. So that ability to learn as you go is fundamental. Um, two more things, and I'm going to uh, bring this to a close. Um, having done all that, the other thing, and this is really difficult, is you have to not get bored. You have to just stick at it. And people will always come and come and say, why don't we do this? And, oh, I've had a great idea and all these things. And they're, often they are great ideas. And sometimes you can build them in through the learning. But the most difficult thing is just to keep the focus. You set a goal. Are you going to achieve it? Um, actually, just before um, I met uh, with Javed, uh, the chief minister, back in 2009, I came into a, sorry, 2011, apologies. Uh, I came to a meeting with the leaders of all the four major provinces and other parts of Pakistan in, in Islamabad. And they'd all had a flood. Remember that very big flood that covered, the water covered an area bigger than the size of England after the Indus had flooded and the, the rivers that flowed through Punjab. It was, it was desperate. And these people, they were education leaders, but they'd all been redeployed quite understandably onto the flood. And they were absolutely shell-shocked. And... This meeting had been planned before the flood, so I just turned up as normal, and I could see these people were shell-shocked. And we had a bit of a chat about the flood, and they said, and I completely understood this, they said, we've had a flood, we can't do education reform anymore. And I, I had a dilemma, and I don't know how it worked out in my head, but this is how it went. So my, my heart went out to them. I was really sympathetic. They'd been working absolutely flat out, and they were exhausted. But what I actually said was, did the flood make your schools better? And that is a pretty challenging question, but it is actually the question that matters. So the basic argument is you, you knew you had a big problem with education. That's why you uh, set up this process. And it was a big problem before the flood and the flood distracted you, but it didn't make the schools better. It made them a bit worse, if anything, because some schools have been flooded away. And so you've now got to get back on the task. My favorite example of this was actually in, in London in 1940. So Britain is at war. It's the only country still left standing after the Nazis have conquered France and Scandinavia and Belgium and Holland and Denmark and all the rest of it. And the Nazis have been planning an invasion of Britain, which doesn't quite work out, but then they're bombing London every single night for 40 nights in a row. And the Department for Education in London, then called the Board, the Board of Education, is evacuating children from the cities which are being bombed to more rural areas. It's a big logistical task. But the permanent secretary of the Department for Education um, was a clever man. And he said to a group of about six civil servants, look, I know we, we can take care of the, 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 the children and all of that and, and the schools that get bombed. So we, we've got the systems going up. I'd like you six to go out of London you can stay in a hotel on the south coast. It was called the Branksome Dean Hotel in Bournemouth, to be specific. You just go there and write a design for education after the war. That's amazing. At the time, you, you, the odds on Britain winning the war were quite low. Stalin hadn't joined the war yet. The Americans hadn't joined the war yet. It was just a matter of time or so many people would have thought. But the permanent secretary had thought ahead. So while we go through this crisis, we're not going to lose the opportunity to think ahead. So this question of focus and persistence and sticking at it and not losing sight of the goal that you set 
because it was important is really fundamental. Again, these are all stories told in, in, in my book. And then you've got to solve problems. Obviously, problems will arise. You have to solve them. And there are a set of problem-solving techniques. You can go and visit the front line and talk it through. We solved a problem for Justin Trudeau. He wanted to deliver clean drinking water routinely to every single uh, Indigenous Canadian community. You would have thought, given that Canada became independent in 18... 68 that they would have solved that problem by the time Trudeau was elected but they hadn't there were lots of places with what the jargon called drinking water advisories which meant their drinking water was poisoned or unclean and they were uh, drinking water out of um, out of bottles that were delivered to them he thought that was a scandal it was a scandal and he said to the, the relevant department you've got to fix this by 2021 they said we hear you prime minister but it's impossible he said, it's interesting that you say that because we're going to do it. Um, and then they, they were really worried. They didn't know how to. They were very nice people. I said, you've got to go and talk to the people in remote Canada and actually find out what the problem is, really understand. You have to go and visit them. They said they won't like us visiting because of the history. And I said, well, they might not like you visiting, but I promise you, it's really a long argument over six months. I promise you, if you go, first of all, you'll turn out to enjoy it. And secondly, you will solve the problem. And they said, oh, you can't. Anyway, eventually I said, look, I'll send one of my colleagues with you, uh, our expense, don't worry about it. And he will go with you. He's done this many times, not in Canada, but all over the world. And so they, they agree to it. So they go and then they come back. And Canadians are very nice people. They call me afterwards and they say, it worked and we enjoyed it. And they have solved the problem. So, the, so you have to have problem solving techniques. You have to think creatively and openly, but not lose sight of the goal. Um, Last thing is when you've succeeded, if you succeed, the big question, there's not much time, especially in government, for resting on your laurels because either you will discover the next problem or the next layer of the problem or the media will or somebody will or some crisis will happen. So there's never any time to rest. So don't, don't do these things because you want to celebrate. Do them because they're the right thing to do, because they're important. Um, lots of people didn't believe Javid and me when we said that Punjab's school system had, had improved. Even the World Bank didn't believe it for quite a long time. Uh, and in any case, the chief minister said, can't we do this for health? And we began to do that. And can't we do it for clean drinking water? And we started on that. And then there was an election. So he'd done two terms, made really good progress. Um, but there's never any time to rest on your laurels or celebrate History might, if you're lucky, write you up well, but don't bank on it. Do it because it's important, uh, because it matters, because you're ethically sound and because you believe in good government. And I'm going to finish on this point. In this world that we're in right now, um, I think this question of delivery, whatever you call it and however you describe it, is more important than it's ever been because trust in government is falling away. And there are many elements that Nick's written about this Many things make up trust in government, and they're not all to do with delivery. But one element of trust in government is if governments promise to do things and then do them and people see that they've been done, that enhances trust. Not just in that particular government, but in government in general and in democratic institutions in general. So delivery is important in itself because you then end up, if you succeed, you're providing better services to people that they will appreciate uh, or at least benefit from, even if they continue to grumble. Um, but it's also important because 
governments need to build trust and it's one part of building trust. There are many other, other factors about that. I'm very happy to discuss any of that. I'm very happy to answer any of your questions. Really look forward to the conversation. And most of all, Javid, I look forward to hearing from you again after quite a long time without seeing you. So thank you very much. Great, Michael. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic um, presentation and overview of you know, some really important questions and important themes. Um, uh, if there are any questions just of clarification before we go over to Javid, because we can come back to the substance of what Michael's presented in, in the conversation. But if there are anything that if there anything people want to jump in now, just please do say so, won't you? Um, uh, I can't see any hands up. Uh, but okay, in that case, then I'll, I'll, I'll go to Javid now. Perhaps Javid, you could then uh, speak about your research and the Punjab reforms, uh, and then we'll ask Arif to comment, and then we'll come back to Michael uh, for a debate. So, Javid, you're going to share your screen now, yeah? Right. Um, Michael, you brought back flood great of uh, memories, and um, but thank you for joining us. Really a privilege to work with you and be here also, and thank you, Bath, for creating the space where we can um, actually discuss the entire thing in retrospect and, and learn from it. Um, yeah, I'll just present a few slides just to kind of give you a context and, and talk about the research focus, which we would do with Dr. Nick Pierce, who was very kind to supervise me. And looking at the entire experience and, uh, you know, thinking that whether, for example, it was a game-changing reforms, whether we were managing the status quo or whether it actually built the system so it's about long-term institutional change, which I wanted to kind of look at. Um, and in, I, I mean, the, the, what Michael was saying is actually debate on critical junctures and the limitations. I mean, 2009, when Michael uh, met chief minister and we were there, um, it was a critical juncture really, which actually allowed us to kind of put in place a system which delivered this reform. Um, but then later on, if you look at the literature, Often when you start reforms, uh, uh, the path dependence kicks in and then over time, the reform declines. And the question is after 10 years, looking at it again, whether in key institutions, um, whether the routines and whether the system and structures and the cap capabilities are built or not. And in a way that if you look at the literature, people have been challenging critical junctures really, you know, that, oh, you at the critical junctures, somebody dynamic like Shabazz Sharif, a global expert like Michael Barber, they can start something and later on, nothing happens. I mean, I want to kind of look at it kind of in, in more theoretical terms also. And, and but I mean, uh, Michael is, is, is right because you, I mean, this global pandemic uh, brought back this, particular question that whether, for example, uh, politicians, bureaucrats, and, and experts, whether they can deliver public services better or not, whether we can sustain them beyond the democratic cycle. Because, um, you know, when you have a four or five year cycle, it also dictates its own kind of short term goals. And um, after that, the new government comes in, understandably, but then what you lose is is the essence of the reforms and the capabilities which you can put in. Um, and, you know, uh, Michael is able to discuss this uh, across the globe, but uh, what if, for example, in my context, it was a low capacity, weak democracy, low human development context. So within that, the challenge is even bigger, you know. So, uh, for example, especially for developing world where you have real problem in delivering development, something like that, but you do it for a long time. 
where you have many elements of the reforms are there, uh, whether you can actually, uh, you know, over time um, do it or not, you know, whether it sustainably is able to move numbers, which we were able to move. Uh, so I think that's the real key question, which I wanted to kind of, you know, look at um, and whether, for example, we can draw some lessons uh, for a long-term public service reforms. Um, I mean, at, um, um, at, uh, uh, at that time, uh, when we started in 2009, 54,000 schools, 10 million children, very, very large system. Uh, I mean, the problem was well known, but wasn't acknowledged by political elite. And what contribution which our work was able to make is to kind of make that challenge really registered to the chief minister. I mean, he was focused on many other things, but wasn't focused on the actual problem of system reforms. And the data was there, wasn't very visible to chief minister. I mean, we this is the data from that time in which, for example, you could see that Punjab was on excess numbers and quality uh, was performing much less than comparable systems in India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal was there, but wasn't these figures weren't wasn't registered to the uh, system leader. And when we discussed this with Chief Minister, he didn't believe that he would ever be able to. I mean, the Punjab is 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 missing MDG, and I mean that was the hook from where, for example, we went to bigger reforms. I mean, it wasn't that the um, you know, uh, government wasn't doing much. The, the, there was a reform program in place, World Bank funded program, but it was very input centered. You know, there's a lot of inputs and six monthly reviews and aid memoirs and everything was there, but uh, it wasn't really enough to make rapid progress. And I was part of that program also. And um, I could see actually that these six monthly reviews and this kind of just very you know, 20 page Aid Meyer and, you know, with no action and, you know, it wasn't really actionable. You won't be able to, even if you're doing many things, you're trying to build system, but you won't be able to make progress because uh, you would not focus on outcome level reform. So, I mean, when you now look at many other reforms also, the real question you need to ask is all of these are inputs or whether they're actually moving the big numbers or not. You're counting the trees and missing the forest. Are you? So that's the question which you need to kind of ask when you start start these. Um, luckily, I mean, there's several things which actually were happening at that time, which actually worked in favor of uh, our reform program. A, the UK government uh, committed 500 million pounds uh, from 2009 to 18 for Punjab. So that was big. Uh, Andrew Mitchell, you know, uh, he's not in, in UK's political establishment. He doesn't, he's not really well uh, remembered, but I mean, as insider and defeat, I could see that out of all sectors of states, he was the only one having real vision for for delivery at on ground, real vision for how the aid should work. So he created independent commission for aid impact. When he came in two thousand nine, he really pushed country offices to push numbers. That actually pushed advisors to kind of show some results. And um, when Michael came in, uh, you know, we had. Uh, you know, he, he had experience of running delivery unit and making delivery work. So all of that worked very well because, you know, we wanted to make the to chase numbers. Mike was there with experience to make system reforms. Um, and his, his political oversight model uh, and approach actually was very well suited. It's just that he was only trying to do at the federal level. So there were seven, eight months that has spent and wasn't really working. I was working on Punjab and I went to Michael, I 
developed this one page in which I said elements of reform which are working and elements of reform which are not working. And then, um, you know, uh, we were able to kind of, you know, uh, you know, move that in, in procurement terms who later was able to kind of, you know, hire McKinsey, Adam Smith, because those things are important also to kind of convert programs into actual technical work streams. At personal level, my own, you know, I was raised in the rural North Punjab um, with, you know, a lot of family members uh, uh, actually dropped out from school. It really understood on ground situation. So I, I always thought that maybe there's an opportunity which you can actually do. And therefore, in all of this politics and all of these skepticism, my own personal gut was that actually if something could make implementation work, it should be supported. And I think and, and Michael wrote many books, but this is the book which I would recommend people to read, Instruction to Deliver, because this is the book which I read earlier on, probably the first one in Defeat Pakistan to read it and understood it really and get it, because I thought, oh, here is a method in which you can make politics works for delivery. Because, you know, it's, I mean, it's very easy to kind of, you know, say, oh, this is just result-based management, you know, the element which Michael, but actually making it work inside very complex crisis-ridden politics with political leaders who have very little attention span. It's very kind of, you know, it's a way this book actually narrates you how, for example, you are in a very busy number 10, you are able to kind of, you know, make uh, implementation really registered in the system. And in the same manner, you can replicate the pretty much in Punjab. And I remember a meeting right after the meeting with the chief minister, next day, Michael had gone and I went back to the director and there's nobody there. And he made me to sit for four hours, just lecturing that why we actually had this meeting at first place, you know, all of those things. But when you're clear about implementation, you're able to kind of, you know, then say, look, you know, there's this, this something which you, you have to develop emotional intelligence and you, and all of these which uh, elements as Michael mentioned, all of them are, are actually in a way science, but they're, they're really art as well to make them work, right? So uh, in terms of the, uh, and results were very impressive. I mean, I just give you an example of Punjab Education Foundation when we started working uh, the only 400,000 kids were there. We were now there are 3.2 million children studying in Punjab Education Foundation. And out of these 3 million, roughly 1.5 to 2 were completely new children. We had surveys after surveys in South. I mean, many other things also, 100,000 teachers, you know, very impressive results. Um, and that became my, my focus of my PhD thesis. And the focus is that I want to kind of theorize this, uh, whether the reform success looking at it very critically and saying whether these efforts help in building long-term state capacity and cause institutional change, or um, whether they deliver in a project context, right, when all of these conditions are in place. So uh, whether, for example, uh, we can draw lessons out of them to kind of, you know, build institutions. Um, if you look at the theories, so it's about institutions then, you know, and, and we know that uh, Darren James Robinson's work on weak and extractive institutions or Paul Collier looking at governance. So it's all established that if, if institutions work well, they lead to good governance. But maybe we have to start from right from the beginning, from Weber, you know, from traditional type institutions and how they transition to post-colonial states like Punjab and Pakistan, which Ilhan Nia's 
um, basically narrated that how all of this modern state uh, Punjab was able to inherit out of 90 years of rule, uh, British rule from 1857 to 1940s, and how those institutions were in, in kind of, you know, inherited. Mm. Um, and, but, but, you know, the policy now, Sajid Ali, his PhD thesis, he says that uh, institutions, uh, it's no more policy making, is no more just a national government, it's the sphere of authority which is now shared by others also. So my policy actors who work with DFAID, with the World Bank, with others who work alongside national governments, they also kind of, you know, then be very influential over time. And there should be an acknowledgement of their role as well. Although we can uh, look at, critically look at them as well, but it's, it's, it's the reality that they can actually uh, find ways to make uh, kind of, you know, change. Uh, you know, again, the critical justice institutional theory where I land the entire argument. This is very important point because if you look at the cases after case of critical junctures, doesn't really work. But uh, now, for example, there's a new body of work and Thielen and Mohani typically is advancing it that you can actually bring within incrementalism also elements of revolutionary change. And I think that's important contribution could be if you especially deploy normal longs actors oriented approach in which, for example, how these actors at the critical, critical junctures decide something. And then, for example, when the path dependence kicks in, in the lock-in stage, uh, the political ideology then can actually help even in the long term to uh, kind of, you know, and I will bring in the example of Vietnam, where, for example, they were able to sustainable basis for 20, 30 years, make improvements. And the reason is that you have these routines, you have these junctures. At the same time, over time, these ideology and communication actually help this path dependent stage where institutions decline. Instead of declining, those institutions actually keep uh, developing because you have several different elements also there. And that's actually can take care of the crit criticism of technology also for being just time bound. Because over time, if you bring additional system change elements also, you can do that. When I would look at it, I will also look at the big picture questions around public private sector, which Carl Poliani, for example, used to say that, you know, the governments have big role in, in, in nurturing private sector. In Punjab also government had a big role in bringing private actors to deliver education. Or look at the looking at the work process, the routine, which, which Taylor, Taylor used to kind of write about, you know, the, the processes um, and the affirmative action, which actually you need to look at the downside of the market as well. So all of these elements would kick in when we would discuss Punjab more critically. Um, and I, as a critical realist, I would start with this theory that you have to have six elements and they are again driven from Michael's work also, but you have to have these six things to deliver a project. You have to have political intent, clear policy priorities. Number three is technical ability to convert policies into programs. You need money, you need regular stock takes, and you need policy delivery. Now, many governments actually, they have great, like for example, this Imran Khan's government, great political intent, great priorities, but they don't have number three and they don't have number five. And you, the moment you these two things remove, even the big intent, you're not able to then do much because you know, you're working very hard, but you didn't convert the ambition into programs. You never were able to review it and therefore you, you lost it. So I will start with this, for example, um, uh, you know, using reduction, abduction process, uh, that this is the initial theory, whether talking to political elite, that whether this really works in other contexts or not. But second part of my theory is, uh, which I would test out that, and Michael, this is also for your attention, that if, for example, you don't deliberately uh, 
design the system change elements inside the model, uh, you won't be able to kind of transform the system. And, you know, when I look back on Punjab, we were really good in making the efficiency gains and making the system work. But we were, it was difficult for us to, we didn't put in the system change element, which means that, you know, changing the way Department of Education works, or statistics works. And, but that's difficult as well, because if you look at deliverology, it's about sequencing and it's about starting from easy to difficult. If you start, try to do two difficult things from day one, um, you won't be able to make much change. So, I mean, this is a tension, intellectual tension, which we have to kind of, you know, decide over time. And maybe this work would bring in some way of suggesting that how, for example, you design for a completely new, you have to have two elements of it. One is the, the, the efficient things you can fix. The second bits are things you can't fix, but still are important to do to make it. It could be changes in the laws. It could be changes in the ways budgets are made. It could be changes in the way structures are working. Things which are difficult long-term involve political economy, but you have to kind of put them in so that you have a longevity in, 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 in this reform which you bring in. Um, this is again a framework in which I suggest that uh, uh, again, uh, within the path dependence, we look at, for example, uh, how the political commitment and ideology and the communication actually take care of the declining elements of the institution, which even after the project, which, uh, which, which they can still prosper. And uh, this can contribute in making sure that once you start something, you would be able to kind of, you know, contain that, but we would critically look at it again, you know, uh, uh, to do that. Um, Finally, I mean, just, just I'll just stop here uh, and, and maybe we can reflect a bit on other bits also again. Uh, I mean, the point which Michael raised also and which I raised, that's a lot of time when in the reform process, uh, people are much less ambitious in the beginning, you know, very skeptical. And I think that's something which we need to get rid of. If, you, if you're not hopeful, you can't, if you don't want to take much risk, you can't kind of, you know, make some change on the ground also. This mindset bit is, is very important. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Javed. Um, I just want to say, I, mean, I think the themes that you raised there of the relationship between policy implementation and delivery and systems and institutions, it's a really key set of questions, and, uh, and the relationship between uh, change in the short and medium term and longer term change in the how change endures if you like again and you know really uh, again another really important question for public policy uh, analysis and for uh, studying policy making and, and its legacies so just want to sort of hold on to those thoughts because they're because they're very very important ones um but um just want to come in now if i can to uh, to arif is arif on the call yes here we are arif just want to give you the opportunity to kick us off in the discussion arif yes uh thank you very much nick uh it's a great privilege to be uh, on this panel because uh, both uh, Michael and Javed have been very popular names in educational reforms in Punjab, not just educational reforms, but very popular uh, policy reformist in the Punjab over the uh, last decade. And uh, as successive evaluation reports of these reforms suggest, there is a lot to celebrate uh, for both of them and for everyone uh, involved with the education system in Punjab uh, as these reforms have drastically 
uh, improved many indicators of the education system, uh, such as improving infrastructure, uh, enrollment rates, gender parity, teachers' presence, and reducing dropout rates. And I also take uh, pride in uh, uh, playing uh, a tiniest role in shaping some of the aspects of these reforms as uh, Javed engaged me with the design of the Punjab Education Sector Program for DFID uh, in 2012. So in some ways, this makes me somewhat insider to these reforms and allows me to raise some of the critical questions uh, which I think we should be raising, uh, and especially when we have this opportunity to, uh, to interact with the uh, key drivers uh, of these reforms. Uh, as Javed, you, 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 you're trying to situate these reforms uh, within the larger uh, institutional uh, uh, context of Punjab. Uh, I was wondering if you uh, see that there is a need for a wedding uh, a sense of dehistoricization of educational policy and practice uh, uh, within the uh, context of Punjab and also in Pakistan. Uh, as we know that Pakistan started uh, 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 at the time of its independence with uh, as low literacy rates as less than 10% uh, and out of what the uh, economic uh, survey of that time uh, said uh, uh, the economic wastelands of India. And starting from that point with disproportionately underdeveloped uh, colonial education system, uh, Pakistan has come long way to develop one of the largest education systems in the world uh, with uh, uh, catering to the fifth or sixth largest population in the world that has been reproducing uh, at large scale. And these developments of the education system have happened over last seven, eight decades. And no doubt that the last latest of these reforms that we are talking about are probably the most profound ones. Uh, uh, they're largest definitely far from the donor's point of view, uh, but uh, comparing to the baseline, there have been uh, a number of other reforms in the province and also in the country uh, if we compare to the respective baselines. And situating these reforms within that historical context uh, would really help you uh, uh, make a fair assessment of what has been achieved uh, and in what way and uh, in, uh, at what cost as well. Uh, there are three, four points which I really want to raise here. Uh, the, the, the first one uh, is more like a question to both uh, Michael and uh, Javed. Uh, do you see that these reforms have uh, sort of uh, perpetuated the centralization of the education system when the evidence everywhere points toward, uh, towards the value of decentralization and improving efficiency of the education system and improving uh, engagement with the citizens and responding to local priorities and needs and in uh, 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 overall being responsive to uh, the citizens. Do you feel that the way these uh, reforms have been implemented, where all the emphasis seen, uh, seems to be put behind uh, one office of the chief minister and who has been known for delivering uh, 
uh, uh, various reforms and services, but in a highly personalized, authoritative way, uh, and who is not necessarily known for institution uh, building throughout his uh, political career, which has been fairly long. So do you see that the way these reforms have been implemented have reversed the process of decentralization if this was ever uh, initiated in the province? Uh, and what are the implications of this uh, for the power relation, not just between uh, the, the various levels of administration of the education system, but also, uh, for example, between uh, the south and north uh, divide in the province, which is not accidental. The underdevelopment of the education system in Punjab, uh, these low performing districts that happen to be in south, these are not accidental. These are outcomes of the wider political economy, which has uh, an ethnic dimension as well. So to what extent these reforms has, uh, have addressed those power relations uh, is my first question. The uh, second question is that the heavy emphasis on service delivery, uh, uh, which of course is uh, 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 extremely valuable uh, if we are to improve the education system in the country and in the province. Uh, but I, I feel that, that this has diverted attention from raising some of the uh, very fundamental questions uh, which affect the education, uh, uh, which has serious implication for the education system. For example, the, the, uh, there is uh, persist there has historically been the persistence of low enrollment and dropout rates uh, in the province. Uh, and uh, uh, if we approach this issue of low enrollment from service delivery point of view, then all we need to do is to uh, use the teachers as extension workers and to uh, convince the parents to bring these children back to school. But if we are, uh, uh, if we have the space to consider the wider uh, political economy or the wider uh, uh, factors which are shaping the demand for education for these uh, poor, uh, marginalized and exclu excluded families, then the implications might be quite different. I've been following a number of families in a rural community in central Punjab uh, where the uh, for the last 12 years. And the uh, strikingly, the education levels of the older siblings are much higher than the education level of the younger siblings. And these younger cohorts, are exp they experienced education system uh, before dropping out uh, uh, when the education system was expanding at an unprecedented pace. So why were these families uh, dropping out of, uh, choosing out of the education system? And I guess part of the answer lies with their uh, experimenting with the education system and in the way uh, this experience has helped them are uh, failed to help them to achieve social mobility uh, within the deeply hierarchical social context, socially embedded labor markets and the politics of patronage in which the wider service delivery takes place. And if we are to take those factors into account, then what, how would that affect uh, uh, our educate next generation of educational reforms, for example. The uh, one more point that I want to come to at this point is 
the most valorized aspect of these educational reforms, and that is related to the expansion of the uh, Punjab Education Foundation, which was set up to expand the public-private partnership in the province. Uh, and I feel the heavy emphasis on delivering education service through the private sector was justified on two grounds. A, the quality imperative, that the private schools were believed to provide better quality education. B, the cost imperative, that the cost of service delivery at these schools tend to be as low as one third compared to the public schools. Now, if we look at the quality imperative, the case for quality uh, was very weak to begin with. If you look at the initial evidence, the, the marginal difference that privatization of private school was creating uh, uh, as compared to the public school, it was not very strong. But a latest research uh, by the real uh, center of the Cambridge University really describes that evidence as well. What it does show is that the, the, the gap, the, the difference that private schooling creates compared to the public school, if we were, if, if we control for the family uh, uh, factors, it's as low as 0, 0.0 standard deviation. So the quality uh, argument doesn't hold true, or at least at this point. Now coming to the cost uh, 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 imperative, the, the, the major uh, uh, factor uh, uh, in uh, low cost delivery, uh, which is possible through private schools, essentially is, of course, there are low overheads for uh, delivering education for the private, through the private school. Uh, but most importantly, these private schools pay exceptionally low to the school teachers. And the way this uh, uh, private sector has expanded under these reforms, at this point, I, I believe there are 300 to 400,000 uh, teachers who are employed in these low cost private schools. And, and the arrangement uh, that, that most of these teachers have is that they are paid as little as uh, half of the minimum wage in the province and sometimes even uh, equal to, or even lower than one third of the minimum wage in the province. Now, the right to education was being delivered at the cost of rights through education. So, so through these reforms, what we have created is a class of precariat uh, teachers who, by the way, uh, not accidentally, uh, tend to be women uh, 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 and coming from uh, poor socioeconomic background, of course. Uh, and, and these teachers do not have any employment security. They do not have any protections uh, of their rights whatsoever. And as I was talking to some of these teachers in Muzaffargarh uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, many of these were not even paid salaries during the pandemic-induced school closure while the schools were being paid by the government. So what I feel is that the cost is being saved uh, by basically this, this uh, cost is being transferred to these teachers who must sacrifice their minimum wages to achieve the targets of enrollment. And uh, mm. uh, as a, uh, 
I'll be cl- I, I'll be finishing here. Yeah, sorry. I, if I do want to keep some time for some discussion, if you could, yeah, that would be yes. great. Yes, as 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 a student of social mobility, uh, and as the social distance of these teachers uh, tends to be uh, very low compared to the poor students that they teach, uh, I'm only beginning to explore the implication of this policy for the prospects for social mobility or the aspirations for social mobility of the, te- the students that these teachers are teaching uh, given their own economic and occupational destinations are not uh, really uh, uh, making them the role models for these students. So I feel these are some of the important questions that these reforms, uh, the evaluation of these reforms need to, need to uh, address uh, at this point. I should stop here. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ari. Thanks a lot for, for, for that contribution to the questions. Uh, I, I think perhaps, it, Michael, if we could um, come back to you and, and, and Javi just to pick up on some of these themes then. So, so one, so one the, obviously there's the question of the kind of post-colonial legacy, institutional legacy of a country like Pakistan that, as Arif says, uh, it emerges uh, as an independent nation from colonial rule. And what that institutional context means for reforms. And I suppose there's sort of wider question, Michael, which is, you know, you, you, you go to many countries around, around the world and their institutional context must clearly differ substantially one from another. You know, you mentioned, of course, the difference between being in number 10 and being in the chief minister's office in Punjab. And so, so I suppose one, one question is then thinking about how do, how do reform strategies and public policy strategies um, uh, understand and embrace those institutional differences? How do you think about them? And what they mean, um, and then to come to some of Javed's points, and they relate, I think, to this question of centralisation and decentralisation capability, and the staging of reform processes that Arif and Javed have both raised. You know, at, 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 at what point in these reform strategies do you do you think about the institutional change that you're making, the system change, and the and the endurance of that change, and how that change is embedded uh, so that it doesn't you know, um, dissipate or disappear when the chief minister goes or when the delivery unit gets shut down by an incoming politician or uh, et cetera, et cetera. So thinking about this this balance between sort of reform and institutional change over the longer term, which um, is obviously the core of Javid's thinking, but goes more widely to the questions of sort of capability, system configuration in, in public services. Perhaps you could start with some of that, Michael, if, if that's okay. Yeah, Th- thank you, Nick. I will I have happily address that, and I'll try and be brief. But, but Javid, uh, Arif made some very good points, and thank you, Arif, for your contribution. I, I want to, I, I will um, pick up those points exactly as you suggest, Nick. So I, on on centralisation, given this is an academic event, look at chapter three of how to run a government. It's called strategy, and it specifically deals with this question. And basically, what it says. And this applies definitely to school systems, but also to other big public systems. Is when a system is massively failing, which is what the Punjab system was in 2009, seriously underperforming, 30% of teachers not going to school on a given day, very high, low levels of enrollment, very poor outcomes. When a system is failing like that, decentralization is not the answer. Arif said there was a lot of evidence. I've never seen the evidence that decentralizing to an incompetent system is the solution to anything. So it's it was massively underperforming. And to get some central drive uh, to to drive up performances, which is what we were doing, is where you start. And then come to Nick's point, and uh, Arif also made the point of how do you move on from that over time? And chapter three of um, 
uh, of how to run a government is specifically about that. I haven't got time to go into all the detail on that, but, but it is really important. Centralization done properly and done well is a good way of getting a system to go from awful to adequate. When you want to go from good to great, it's harder. So the, the, the line um, that I use in the book is you can mandate awful to adequate, but you can't mandate greatness. That has to be unleashed. So when you've got from awful to adequate, you have to then start unleashing greatness, the inspired head teachers, the inspired teachers, the inspired schools, whatever it might be. Um, and that's a sophisticated challenge. I don't underestimate the challenge, but I totally reject that in a failing system, decentralization is the answer, Complete, completely reject it. Uh, and indeed, Arif made the point about the south of Punjab being different from the north, which is true. The south made faster gains because of centralization. And it didn't narrow the gap completely, but it closed the gap on enrollment and so on. It closed the gap on uh, facilities. It closed the gap on performance. So centralization helped the South. Decentralization would have left it where it was. The, sec the, the, the second point I want to make, and Arif might use these words as well about um, patronage and performance. The chief minister consciously, and we, we constructed this idea together, that you have to move over time from the politics of patronage, which had bedeviled education and other services in Pakistan for decades, from the politics of patronage to the politics of performance. That is what we were doing. So you start appointing people on merit. Hundreds of thousands of teachers appointed solely on merit. Every district chief appointed solely on merit. Officials in the department appointed solely on merit. Before that, that those had all been political appointments. No wonder half of them didn't work. The first year I was in Pakistan, I went to Sindh several times. They had four different secretaries of education in one year because they were just political uh, places. They weren't trying to do anything. So, so first is centralization done well is important to get from all the But The second is the politics of performance needs to trump the politics of patronage. Otherwise, you're never going to solve these problems. The third, the third one is um, this thing about the private schools. What happened, Arif, was before 2009, 40% of parents had chosen private schools before there was even a Punjab Education Foundation. The parents had voted with their feet. They voted with their feet because this, the public school system was so awful and they did get better performance for lower cost. They paid small amounts of money out of very low incomes. So the Punjab Education, system, education Foundation didn't create the private system. Parents created that. What the Punjab Education Foundation did was say, well, if that many parents are going to choose the private schools, let's bring that within a regulatory framework. Let's fund some of the schools as long as they show outcomes. Uh, and that was really important. And the, the Punjab education programs were, were focused at the poorest elements. So they drove uh, what you said was your biggest ambition, which is social mobility. So again, I completely reject the idea that the Punjab Education Foundation created private schools in Punjab. They were there. The parents had voted with their feet in despair at the public system. Uh, and what we wanted to do was take account of that at the same time as improving the public system. And we did both, and you can see it in the data. Mm. Um, and then uh, final point, on the colonial legacy, this is, I'm gonna say something hard now, and I think uh, Shabazz Sharif would agree. Actually, in the end, you have to get over that. There is a colonial legacy. It was damaging for Punjab and, and, uh, and other parts of South Asia. But in the end, you have to go over it. And there was one meeting I remember, it was on water, not on education, where um, he heard his officials telling him all these excuses why they couldn't do it. And he just banged the table and he made this very, very powerful, impassioned speech that only somebody from Punjab could make. He said, look, 
we were we became independent in 1947. The same year, Germany had been flattened by the end of the war. Japan had been flattened by the end of the war. Now look at Japan. Now look at Germany. Now look at Pakistan. What what have they done that we haven't done? And part of it is we government haven't got on, identified the problems, and then tried to challenge them and bring the politics of performance in place of. Uh, of politics of patronage and so you do have to build institutions that will succeed um, but in the end you have to the, the colonial legacy is there it's a fact of history it's it's a sorry fact of history but it's there and you have to take it into account and get on and take responsibility yourself michael thank you very much javid can i ask you to come in yeah i mean <clears throat> the choice is uh we had in 2009 was, I mean, if you have uh, 22 million children out of school, out of them, roughly 10 million in Punjab, the choice we had was that if you don't put them in the low cost private school and you, the, the, the public sector school would take, you know, within the PEPRA rules, which Punjab follows, procurement rules, it would take three years to, you know, have the building done and five years to get it functional. We wanted to kind of, you know, put the, you know, we wanted to save the generation of children, really, you know, because it's if you, you can't let, you know, those children just in the street. So therefore, in Zafargad alone, for example, I remember one district, we created 232 schools in one summer. And recently, when I looked at the data last year, 54,000 school children were studying in those. And I went to one village and I asked from, you know, and an old man told me that he voted seven times. And this is the first time when he got anything closer to a public sector facility, funded by public sector, but, you know, by the private entrepreneur. So you were able to kind of, you know, put these million, one and a half million children in school just because you had this rapid facility there. Nobody is stopping public sector to open the school, but they just, they just have to change their procurement system and they, they couldn't do that, right? So that's the uh, that's a real pragmatic decision, and and the the the, the question which RF is raising about minimum wage, and there's a recent paper also by. Of course, that's a new problem. Then we have to solve it, right? Public policy solves one set of problems, and then there's a second set of problem is now that oh, the, all teachers are there, but they are being paid minimum wage. This is a new problem. Just solve that problem, and don't kill the sector just to solve that problem, right? This is a different problem. You can come up with a different kind of ways of kind of solving it by creating some kind of you know ways of giving them more money, some kind of scholarship, uh, you know, more education stuff like that. Um, on on, on post-colonial, yeah, Michael is right. Just the only thing which is slightly different for, and this is for Pakistanis to solve, is that, you know, you had a institutional design of these agencies created in 1861. If you look at the British civil services, it went through tremendous change. If you look at Pakistani civil services, I mean, they're stalling reform. There are roughly 26 or 27 commissions set, but nothing is implemented. I mean, there's a big problem of knowing the problems, researching them, but not implementing them. And, you know, nobody have stopped us to kind of, you know, revamp our, uh, our institutions. And my entire thesis is, is not just about uh, delivery. It's about actually then finding a way to reform these institutions and theorize them and bringing them, you know, so, so, so that's, that's, that's the real crux of the problem. Thanks very much. 
Javid. Um, I just want to now sort of open it out for some other questions. I think I've, I think we've got one in the in the chat from Sean. I'm just going to try and bring that up if I may. Um, Michael, it's to, to to you and to Javid and Arif, um, and particularly to you, Michael. This there's a sort of uh, sort of thinkers at Harvard in the sort of development world saying, and I think the reference here is to Meredith Grindle saying that. Um, you know, focusing on transferring kind of performance indicator frameworks, policy expectations uh, to the global south is unrealistic. Um, uh, considering, I'm just reading here from Sean's question, existing capacity levels, power relationships, and apathy and sometimes antipathy towards Western models. In summary, is there room for meso-orientated performance expectations and can we find peace with mediocrity? I think that would probably violate your first uh, uh, first point of ambition, uh, Michael. But um, uh, I suppose that, you know. The, I suppose this comes, there are wider questions here, aren't there, about policy transfer, institutional transfer capabilities, and this 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 point though, to come back again to this question about different yeah, levels. I can ask that quite quickly. First of all, I don't think, uh, as you're implying, I don't think anybody should be come sort of be at peace with mediocrity. Um, mm. my mediocrity for our own children. Why should we want it for anybody else's? So. Mm. I just, I think we that might be a stage you go through, but it's not where you want to end up. The second, the second thing is, re remember what I said about the beginning. So we, we saw the chief minister. He said he wanted something done about it. We said we'd come back with a plan. We based the Punjab education roadmap not on Western models. We based it on Minas Gerais in Brazil, mm -hmm. Western Cape in South Africa, and one of the provinces, I think it was Madhya Pradesh in India. All global south. They'd all already done lots of this. We put it together and we did better than they did overall because we had the continuity of eight years of Shabazz Sharif as chief minister. But it, it wasn't a Western model. I mean, things like data, you can't start describing that as a Western model. Data is something you need to monitor policy, whether you're in the global south or the global north or anywhere else. So that the elements we chose for the roadmap were all based on things that have been done in the global south by global South governments and been proven to be successful, at least over the medium term. So it, it wasn't, it, I, I'm, I'm totally uh, in, agree with the questioner that you don't just because something worked in London or Washington or Toronto or uh, Ottawa, you can't just transfer it to Pakistan. And when we work around the world, which we do, I, I always say to our teams, you have to take three things into account. One is the person who's leader, the, the, the character of that person. The second is the culture of the country. And you have to understand it. If I start working in your country, I read the history of it before I even go there. So thirdly, you have to take account of the constitution and the stage of uh, that, that, that is at and work it through. And you, and you have to take those in their own terms, not compared to London or compared to um Cape Town or anywhere else you just got to try and understand the country and then but the models of having routines having data setting goals those aren't western things they're human things. thanks Michael I, I can see James James Gorgalakis have you got your hand, hand up James yeah <clears throat> yeah thanks I've got a question yeah. uh, thanks so much. that's been so interesting uh and I really enjoy Arif's response actually to, to Michael and, and Javed. I think you raised some really important points. And I, I guess my question picks up on something he's touched on, which is, um, I mean, I've worked quite closely with uh, the researcher at Equitable Access and Learning in Cambridge. And, um, and in so many different contexts, education systems are 
very resistant to policy intervention and policy and to change. They, they kind of, to some degree there, and this is coming back to this complexity thing that we keep talking about this week, but to some degree, they seem to be almost self-organizing. And so kind of interventions don't always pan out the way you expect. And I just wondered how you cope with that in the Punjab, because um, I, I certainly what I've read, I've seen a lot of uh, educational reform seems to be built around you know, <clears throat> engineering changes. This, and again, you, you do it as a centralised intervention. You kind of try and engineer a change through infrastructure projects, you know, training more teachers, writing a new curriculum, whatever it happens to be. But what you actually often need is kind of behaviour change amongst educators and educational professionals and all of those people. So how, how did you kind of ensure that you would achieve the necessary behaviour changes? What, what kind of, I haven't heard much in all the presentations about how you involved educators or educational authorities in this process. I keep hearing about this room, this room full of very clever people who came up with ideas, but what was the engagement with the kind of the sector, albeit one that was in complete disarray? Thank you. Thank you, James. I mean, we've, we've only got about five minutes, so if I may, what I'll do is I'll ask Javid to come back on that, then go to Arif perhaps with some final reflections and then to Michael and then perhaps James Copestake, you might just want to wrap things up, James, if that's okay. So, so Javid first, if um, to pick up the point that uh, was yeah, raised. I think it's a really important question, James, thank you. I think it was really, I mean, the reforms to work was really important that they actually work in complex districts and tassils and, you know, with the teachers and system leaders. So, I mean, it was our job at that point, not just to have the technical ability, but emotional intelligence to actually sit with departmental heads for hours, actually, and, you know, make them understand this. And, you know, the two things were happening at the same time. We never wanted to embarrass officials in front of chief minister. We wanted to reward them. That was the key, right? So in many cases, what happened that after seven, eight months, when people started seeing that the agencies are being rewarded, if somebody did well in front of chief minister, external validation, chief minister is rewarding it. It created a culture in which people wanted to kind of get ahead from each other. Um, to a degree, we could have done better in um, basically creating more people support um, and, you know, the more making it like a movement. But there's so much you can do, actually, with the time you have um, and the resources you have. Uh, if I have to do it again, I'll do it slightly with this model, slightly differently by creating some ways of changing education agency itself, the way it works. I mean, it works in a very traditional system, secretaries and others. You have to bring new kind of capabilities to kind of do those things. We injected new capabilities through McKinsey, Adam Smith, others. But I, in a perfect world, we would like to have this talent already being recruited by Punjab. Punjab does have a lot of money, actually. It's just not being used properly. Um, yeah, maybe Michael want to add, especially Michael, who used to also spend. Michael also used to spend a lot of time with teachers, by the way. I mean, he used to come for three days and two days, especially bringing all of these 36 district officials there, roughly 70 people spending two. That's actually was quite moving, having this conversation. And when, for example, that lead up to then meeting with the chief minister, it became very real dialogue because it wasn't just, you know, flying into Lahore and spending three hours there. It was flying into Lahore, spending four days there with everybody. And then the culmination to chief minister's meeting when it became a real discussion then because it's just based on the field experts and others. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, Javid. Before I come to Michael, just Arif, I wondered if you had anything to add just at the end. 
thank you. I think uh, uh, what Javed said that uh, uh, given the urgency and time pressure and the constraints and resources that uh, were given uh, uh, at the time of uh, the beginning of these reforms, uh, considering that uh, there has been a lot that has been achieved, but uh, as I already said that some of the problems probably are created uh, by the way, you know, one set of reforms are implemented and probably that's the case that always happens. So, so probably we, we need to uh, uh, tackle those problems as uh, uh, different and other actors uh, move on to the next uh, uh, generation reforms. Uh, one aspect of uh, 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 these issues that, that the uh, question that James raised, I feel like uh, we have some clarity over the behavioral change that has happened at the leadership level, at the level of district leadership, the EDOs, the DCOs, and the way they have worked together. Uh, and with the provincial top uh, bureaucracy, uh, we probably have a good understanding and that's uh, quite encouraging, but we do not sufficiently know how those, uh, uh, the aspects of reforms were actually implemented at the school level, whether that was through coercion, because the district administration can be quite coercive, especially when the chief minister is like the chief minister we had. And when uh, uh, the deputy commissioner is heavily involved in meeting the targets of these reforms. So I guess uh, uh, at some point we need to focus on uh, how these targets are being uh, met at the school level, uh, whether that's uh, something which is uh, sustainable, something which is uh, that needs to be nurtured or something which requires uh, addressing in a different way. Um, thank you. Thank you, Arif. I mean, I mean, certainly in, in, in my time in the British government, there was a, there was a very big change between uh, the early, the, the late 1990s and then by 2010 in terms of the school system owning school improvement itself, the leaders, the teachers and others. I mean, I think that that change had certainly happened that it, it had been very much embedded in the practices the professionalism the uh, leadership capabilities at the school level um, and at the level of groups of schools in particular but Michael I, I just wanted to give you the last opportunity to say anything by way of reflection as, as we finish and to, to thank you to, to, you know tremendously for, for coming and speaking to us today it's incredibly good of you and uh, you know we, we've all I'm sure learned a lot from what you said and it's great for uh, for me being able to supervise Javid to be able to have you here and the two of you talking about these reforms and it's a great, it's a great thesis to supervise. So actually I'm very grateful to you, Javid. But Michael, um, let me hand over to you to finish. Yeah, well, thanks to you, Nick. Uh, and thanks to Javid and uh, Arif as well for, for, for their excellent contributions. It's been a, a real pleasure and it's reminding me in a way that I haven't done for some time that of the sort of passion that I invested in this whole program. I, fit, I, fit the, I mean, obviously you, you try and apply your brain to it, but ashes came, came from the heart. And I remember the, sometimes the anger, sometimes the joy, all the emotions that I felt at a very, very deep level uh, about this education reform, but also about Punjab in general and Pakistan uh, more generally. So it's, it's been quite an emotional roller coaster to be reminded of it all. Um, look, um, on James's question, behavior change was the point that's why I talked about pressure and support at every level. You get pressure, you get, you get behavior change among teachers, uh, as we did, uh, or among district officials. 
by having some pressure through accountability, through the publication results, through the, 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 the visits by the men on motorbikes and all the rest of it, pressure for change, but also support to change, big investment in teacher development, big recruitment drives of new teachers on merit-based processes, uh, and the same at every level in the system. And that focus on um, appointments on merit, not on patronage at every level in the system was fundamental. So you get it was all about behavior change. And there was some engineering in the sense that you want the water to flow, but it wasn't really about engineering. It was mainly about uh, behavior change. I also think I'm going to say this, even though you're an esteemed university, some some of the academic research on education and schools is um, designed to problematize everything. You read it and you think uh, they've just told us how complicated it is, but we kind of knew that already, or they've told us how difficult it all is, and we knew that already. And that question of, of sort of academic skepticism sometimes gets in the way of seeing some of the big picture uh, in this. Not all of it, there's some brilliant academic research as well, but that, I just wanted to make mention that in passing. And then um, last, last two points, really. Um, you, you, you want to know about how you make this sustainable, um, and the answer is you have to fight for it, and you have to you have to fight for it at every single stage on all those fifty-four visits I did. But you can start to fight for it, and you build a growing cadre of people. It might start with seven or eight, Jarvid, me, the chief minister, and a handful of others, but it might ends up with thousands of people because they see the results coming through. But if you just do the fighting and then don't do the implementation, people say, "What was all that about?" So you've got to take it through and you have to have a, 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 sense, a belief that you can get this done and stick with it through uh, all that decade. And um, at the end, nearly everybody thought they hadn't always enjoyed the ride, but they did think it made things better. They could feel it and they enjoyed their work better because when they went to school, the children were there and they taught lessons and they had good textbooks and the water ran, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't perfect. There were schools where it didn't work, but it basically worked. But you do have to fight and we have to fight the bureaucracy sometimes, some of the other politicians who didn't like moving away from patronage. We had to fight with parts of the aid agencies. The World Bank thought we were being too ambitious. We said, yes, that's true. The DFID uh, had its own internal debates. Javin knows more about those than I do. Um, but in the end, you have to fight for these things. But what is really important in my view is not to accept the status quo when it was like it was in 2009, or as it is in many parts of the world now, and as it's still, it's still not good enough in Punjab, but um, it, it, it's, it's a battle. And so all the techniques in the world don't get you there without decent political leadership and an act of will. Great, well, thank you very much indeed again, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. We all um, really appreciate your time and um, I hope everybody's uh, gone as much out of that as, as I did. Um, I want to now ask James Copestake, perhaps James, you could just say, uh, what's coming next for everybody and uh, I can hand over back to you but thanks again Michael thank you Javid. Michael thank you. thank you what a privilege thank you yeah thank, thank you. you so much thank you thank you thank you